Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on democratizing access and enabling all care locations to be research locations. From the 2023 CRACO Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference. For more information on the CRACO Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcasts, visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. So today's panel, I hope will be a thought provoking way to come back from lunch. We're going to be talking about this concept of enabling all care locations to be research locations. Oh, I'm getting the, please hold your microphone up higher. I'm pretty loud and project, so I don't usually need the mic. Um, And the question I want you to be considering as we have this discussion is, should all care locations be research locations? Because there's been a lot of debate and discussion on that. Um, So just hold that in your mind. We hope to have a little time at the end for Q&A and interactivity. We'd love to have this conversation with all of you. And with that, let me uh, let my panel introduce themselves. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming back from lunch. Uh, My name is Jamie Harper. I'm the VP of Site Solutions and Engagement for WCG. I work with sites and sponsors to identify and implement strategic solutions to the barriers and challenges we see in getting participant access to clinical trials and accelerating clinical research. So prior to WCG, I was the director of clinical research for a community oncology practice for about 13 years. Hello everyone, my name is Shelley Barnes. I am what's considered a global innovation lead at UCB, um, not too far from here in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so it's a really short trip for me. <laughs> um, I basically, the, the remit of myself and my team is to really scout and explore many different innovations via digital or s- services um, to improve the experience of patients in our clinical trials. We look at everything from how to make remote data access and collection um, better for our patients, as well as you know, reevaluating the outcomes and the way that we collect outcomes. Hello, everyone. My name is Scott Stout. I'm the CEO of MedVector. And uh, what MedVector does is we've identified a pathway through existing FDA guidance that enables treating physicians to host clinical trial appointments without becoming an investigator and without being on the 1572. So I'm sure that there's a lot of people in here going, nuh-uh, so so bring it. Awesome, already a challenge out to the audience. Um, All right, so uh, just as the news cycle started to fade about the Pfizer Care Access challenges, we got CVS's announcement last week. And I think that left a lot of us, I certainly, if any of you were following LinkedIn, there were a lot of opinions we're really good at uh, opining from the LinkedIn platform as an industry. Um, and this, it really sort of, I think it's because it reignited concerns about our ability to take research and bring it to all care locations. And so I'm, I'm hoping that each of you will share a perspective with me on whether or not um, you think we can do that and where we go from here and, um, and, and just sort of what do you think these uh, situations have taught us? And Shelley, I'm gonna start with you. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's, it is interesting, you know, when we heard about Care Access and then we heard about CVS, you know, it was disappointing. And to be completely honest, um, 
you had that moment of you know reflection going, well, are we going down the right path? Because community health and incorporating community health solutions in our clinical trials is something that UTD has been exploring and continues to explore. Um, so yeah, we had those those tough conversations, like you know, um, amongst our teams and such, and then we took a step back and said, you know, for the past several years, we have been exploring DCT solutions with a number of DCT vendors, and I can honestly tell you, I can't tell you how many of those DCT vendors have left the space. And, you know, when you really think about it, and this is a very innovative space, and innovation comes with some costs, and sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. And I can tell you from experience at UCB that some of the vendors that left the DCT space caused us some, a little bit of pain, a little bit of hardship. But what it also gave us was learning so that we can improve how we are conducting you know, DCT trials. So to your question about where do we go from here, from our opinion is we continue to, to move forward. You know, we continue to explore, we continue to do the things that our patients are telling us that they want, they want options, and community health is one of those options. So we will continue down this path with whatever vendor is in the space, and hopefully that vendor will excel with us. Um, I just wanted to comment there quick. I'm going to throw a stone here. Uh -huh. I, I call that moving at the speed of pharma. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that can relate as to why it's such a challenge to get new ideas. Um, and having that longevity as a new company to get through that process is a huge challenge. So those of you here that are in pharma, speak up, push. You know, because it's, it's up to you guys for solutions like ours to see the light of day. I think one thing that was of interest to me in reading through some of the articles was CVS uh, put out a line that offering clinical trials no longer aligns with their long-term strategic priorities. That is very disheartening because from a community-based pharmacy, having clinical trials not be a priority than what is. And I'm... I'm wondering if they saw Dr. Wei's slide from this morning that showed clinical research as that small blip on that revenue chart. Um, it is expensive to conduct clinical trials, especially in that community, but I think it also goes to show that brick and mortar, just because you have a building, doesn't necessarily, you're gonna be successful in clinical trials. You know, I, as far as the CVS goes, I think one of the big mistakes that our industry makes is we're constantly chasing data rather than recognizing that there's relationships that are involved with treating physicians, with, with our specialists. And I think kind of, and th by the way, this is an insider, this is my opinion of what happened with the CVS uh, concept is they had a ton of data and what they did is they, they were looking for a way to monetize that data through clinical trials. And instead of innovating and using new technologies to monetize this data set, Instead, they brought all of the existing problems under the CVS umbrella. And I think that that was where they really struggled is because they didn't have that relationship with the patient that they thought they did, but they had a huge data set. Now, having said that, I still think that there's a huge uh, role that uh, CVS and Walgreens has to play in this industry and in, in recruitment, but I don't think the answer is bringing it all in-house. 
Well, let's talk about in-house for a second. So the Institute of Medicine defines a, you know, a research site as brick and mortar. That's, a, that's what a site is, which sort of limits our opportunity to democratize clinical trials across the, across the board. And um, you know, Jamie, when we were talking in panel, you said, why hasn't this been done before? We're not able to bring research into the community. Like, why are we struggling and struggling and struggling? Um, tell us what you think a research site should be defined as and some of those challenges. So in addition to my job at WCG, I am co-owner of our family farm. And we, we grow corn and soybeans back in central Illinois. And as part of that, we set aside a plot every year for the seed companies to come in and they plant their newest hybrid. It's their research plot. It's the new genetic considerations, disease resistance, higher yield. But it's research, it's field research, and their plans are designed to be outside of that brick and mortar. We are challenged because our protocols are not designed to be outside of that brick and mortar. There are some communities where health literacy is the first step, but that's not brought or considered into those clinical trial designs. So once it, that health literacy, and then it is partnering with those key stakeholders, stakeholders, those key community leaders, to then begin that clinical trial conversation, and concurrently, working with those community physicians to provide them infrastructure, to provide them education, so they can continue that clinical research discussion with the community members. But protocols aren't, protocols aren't set up that way. We start with a patient has already been identified, they have a disease, and now let's go talk clinical trials. There's a whole lot that needs to happen before that. Yeah, we always, uh, those of you who have known me a long time have heard me say, we just keep expecting apples on the trees, but we haven't even planted the seeds in it. It's getting a little, getting a little old, isn't it? So, um, Scott, I know you have a perspective on brick and mortar. Uh, I, I do, yeah. Um, I'm kind of a guidance expert to this point. I'm probably the biggest nerd in the room because I have guidance in my pocket right here. Um, but when we look at the guidance and we look at you know how the FDA looks at a site, it comes down to the data. Where's the data housed? It's not necessarily where is the patient or even where is the investigator. It's where is that data housed? Where is, where is it the place that we can audit to make sure that, that everything is, is kind of above board? Now, when we're talking about DCT, right, and, and the, the challenges that DCT has, conceptually when we're thinking about that, we're thinking about taking the study and bringing it to the patient. And this, this is great because now we're creating lots of new access points for patients, but the problem regulatory-wise is we've now have, we've removed the study from the site, and it's over here somewhere. And so we don't have any regulatory clarity around that. So is this a sub-I? Well, it depends. Is this a site? Well, it depends. Is, who needs to be on the 1572? Well, it depends. And so it's not that we don't have the answers. There's just a lack of clarity, which is preventing a lot of the major players from doing anything about it. Now, if I can flip everybody's brain right now in this room, this is really simple, but it's the same thing, and I think it's going to help our industry a lot. So instead of moving the, the, the study to the patient, what if we brought the patient to the clinical trial site virtually? It's the same thing. 
But what happens? The patient, because they're at the site virtually, the study is still at the site. The data is still at the site. Source data is still at the site. The IRB is still regulating the site, not the patient location. So if we can turn our, our brains and start thinking about DCT as moving the patient to the study instead of the opposite, I think we're going to have some traction. Shelley, will that fly in pharma? <laughs> it could. It could. I, no, Goal, no, no, no. It depends. There we go. <laughs> um, is it like, oh, it's sorry. complicated. It's our Facebook site. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah. All of those, yes. Um, I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, you know, and I, I do appreciate the, the twist on words, you know. Um, I think that the challenge that we have in pharma is multifaceted, you know, trying to make sure that we can use your approach and have that conversation with regulators and convince them of that approach and to get their feedback and understanding and to make sure that they can understand it from the way that you present it. It depends you know, on whether or not that can be achieved or not. Um, it depends on how a patient will interpret that because do they feel comfortable enough to participate in the trial virtually, even though they're at a site from the way that you, you know, convey it. And also, and it depends on how the investigator will interpret that. And so when you take all of those pieces and you're trying to build and design a protocol that incorporates all of these different perspectives and, you know, trying to present it in such a way that is acceptable across all of the different stakeholders, that's the challenge, at least for us. I think it also depends on the indication. Um, coming from oncology, the oncology patients, they want that connection. They want mm -hmm. that human compassion. Um, they want that one-on-one -on -one care team. So I do, I do think there is a role for hybrid trials um, where those who choose to be decentralized and call in virtually um, can do so. But which, again, the which protocol care team has were you referring to? Referring to the site care the team? The site care team. Well, see, I would argue the opposite, that the patient wants to be with their actual care team more so than the site care team. I'm not sure I understand the difference between the two. Well, so you've got your treating physician, right? You've got your oncologist. In the, in the decentralized model, this is a non-research physician, right? So if the patient is, is being virtually brought to the clinical trial site, that means that they're with their treating physician. And that's where the relationship, I believe, is, is stronger than with the investigator team. Right. But bringing help clinical trials into the community will bring everybody together there within that within their um, where, where they where their family is where totally. their support yeah. system is yeah yeah I mean this is a great debate because really the it comes down to comes back to the patient as it always does and we sometimes forget right it always comes back to the patient and where a patient is comfortable um, could be in a lot of different settings. Uh, you know, I, I know that I was shocked early on when we first started talking about DCTs and how there were patients who said, I don't want you coming to my house. Mm -hmm. Like, we just assumed that would be the most convenient thing. And then there were other patients who said, I, this is the only time I get 
to get out of my house, right? So uh, we've heard that. We heard that at Patients as Partners earlier this year, um, again and again from patients. So we can't just assume we know where patients want to be seen or treated or cared for or who they want to be cared with. Um, and I think um, it's a good, good tee up to the, the next topic that we want to talk about, which is conflicting incentives in the system, which continue to be one of the biggest pain points. So, Scott, I know you um, came into this space um, because of a personal experience with trials. I think a lot of us have, and, and that allows us to act from a place of vocation um, and from the, from the position of a patient, right, which, again, we sometimes take our patient glasses off when we're at work. Um, I wonder what you think about what conflicting incentives are still in place. And, you know, you even take 1572 guidance, it says now, right, that that um, consent could be, you know, we've got regulators on board. Consent can happen in a way we all said, nope, consent can't happen this way. Well, we know that's not true. The regulators are no longer the objection we can keep throwing up again and again. Oh, regulators won't let us do it. So what are those conflicting incentives we're really holding up? So there's a lot to unpack here. Okay, uh, so the, the first part of this is uh, I'm going to take a stance that is risky right now. I'm going to go ahead and say I think that we're overly focused on the patient. Um, I think that we're, we think that the solution to patients participating in clinical studies is because it's not easy enough. I don't think that that's what the problem is. I think that we need to take a greater focus on our treating physicians. We need to be more doctor-centric. I think we need to empower our clinical trial sites to have the tools necessary to engage with those community physicians so they can do the proper recruitment. So when we, when we talk about misaligned incentives, what options does a treating physician have right now? Like even if they know about the study and you've identified the patient in their practice, what are their options? Their options are give the patient away, which they don't want to do, or become an investigator, which most of them don't want to do. So that leads a lot of them to this third option, which is ignore the notification. So if we find a way, if we can figure out a way how to align these incentives between the treating physicians and the investigator teams, I think it really opens up access to patients. And this is, this is a, a key component. And so there's a second part about regulatory-wise and the, and the 1572. So as I mentioned a, a second ago, I'm the biggest nerd in the room because I have the new guidance in my pocket. So, just for some clarification. This is where we get concerned, and we're probably glad we lost the countdown clock up here. <laughs> this will be easy, don't worry. All right, so this is in the decentralized gui guidance, the draft guidance from the FDA, which was released a couple of weeks ago. Local HCPs contracted to provide trial-related services that are part of routine clinical practice, for example, performing a physical examination, should not be listed on Form FDA 1572. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear the direction that the FDA is taking, that they're trying to empower us to use these decentralized tools. They just need to make sure that they don't violate patient safety and that, they can still, and that we can still prove efficacy. That's what the FDA does. The FDA is more on our team than we give them credit. 
this is a huge piece that everybody misses. Everybody talks about the FDA like they're the big bad wolf. They are on our time. They, they're on our side, and they want us to create what they call defensible positions. So if you can look through the guidance and you can find something that you could be doing that doesn't violate the guidance and you can create a defensible position, the FDA is behind you. That's what they want to see. They don't want to do pre-approvals. They don't want to do any of that. They want to see us make our own defensible positions. Did that answer it? You answered it. But <laughs> I saw some nodding from Shelly, but I, I know, Jamie, you're at the forefront of implementation all the time. So do you have a counter perspective here, or are we on board? No, I, I do see what you're saying, and I think we also need to take into account that variability with each one of those community Absolutely. physicians yeah. and the, the cost to be able variability to... Variability of protocol as well. Some appointments just can't do right. virtually. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I like the cost comment. You know, um, one of the things, well, first to you, I do agree that being able or finding a way to bring our HCPs, bring those physicians who have that relationship with the patient into the clinical research space as a non-investigator in support of these clinical trials, I'd like to pursue that, and I'm really glad that the FDA is on board with that. The concern I do have, though, is I think just in general, the cost of DCTs is very high. Um, we have a, or at least I'll speak for UCB or my involvement with UCB, um, we still tend to gravitate towards the traditional cost model with the investigators. But then we add on these patient preference things and you know the remote data collection items. And so the cost of the studies are getting extremely high. And so if we're looking for ways to try to improve adoption and progress DCTs, yes, bringing in HCPs is one way to do that. But looking at or rethinking the entire cost model, I think would be better so that we could really distribute the cost based on activities. And not to say that investigators are doing less activities with the, you know, these um, support services and remote data capture. I think they're doing different, you know, activities that we really do need to to explore a little bit more. You know, if we look at the cost model from a uh, DCT versus traditional model, DCT is more expensive, okay? We all agree to that. Now, does anybody know what the value of Humera's patent was worth? Anybody? So it's worth $20.5 million a day. That's not a joke, that's real. $20.5 million a day. So when, when we're thinking about budgets for clinical trials, getting to market faster, recruiting for studies is the priority, and it should be the priority. Yes, the, the, the line items and, and everything you said is accurate and 100% true, but when we look at it from a high enough level, the value of these patents is huge. And if we can get pharma companies to market more quickly, we potentially have the ability to lower prices in the market. So 
I'm a big advocate of how do we do this faster, um, more so than how do we do this more affordably? Well, we don't always respond to evidence in pharma, <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, I mean, look at the research that was done. Uh, I, I think Tufts and City did it back a few years ago, pre-pandemic, right? So you gotta add three years, so three pandemic years to that, that said that we would you know, save millions of dollars in net present value if we just avoided one amendment by getting a little patient feedback into our protocols. And still, we don't do such a great job of that because those two parts of the scale are a little disconnected. But bringing it back to the patient, it's a slightly controversial position you've taken, but I, I think I understand where you, where you were coming from. I do wanna spend a little bit of time talking about the patient experience and, and you know ask why each of you think it's urgent to get this right for patients. We really do, have, like I for one, I'm not willing to abandon the global majority who have been disenfranchised all of this time and we finally started doing things, and those things to just say, oh, oh well, CVS, it was a, a number on a chart. No, these, these are human lives. So tell me, what makes this feel urgent to you that we get this right? I'll start with you, Jamie. I often um, wonder as we look about, uh, and talk about protocol complexity and the participant burden and the site burden, is what we're doing right for industry or is it right for the participant? Um, and in that same study you just referenced, Angela, it was 8% of clinical trials actually use a, a patient advisory board in their protocol designs. But, and with those, uh, with those PABs, they found there were higher enrollments, there were less substantial amendments, and just the reduction of one substantial amendment can accelerate a pre-phase two clinical trial by 30 months and a pre-phase three clinical trial by 18 months. So not only do we have participant engagement, we have lower costs for the sponsor, which will roll to lower costs for the participant, and we're accelerating clinical research. So I think we need to flip that, flip that statement a little bit and say what is right for the participant is what is right for the industry. Exactly. <laughs> I mean. Um, you know, what makes this urgent for us at UCB? It's because our patients are asking for it. You know, quite just, quite frankly, you know, currently UCB has just about 50% of their trials as DCT trials. And we have been collecting evidence, feedback, insights from patients that are participating in those trials, patients that could be participating in those trials, um, as well as sites and other um, feedback. And we are hearing that they appreciate the opportunity, the options to go to a clinical trial site or not. What they don't appreciate is the binary option of going or not. So they'd like to have more options as part of how can they participate in clinical trials, whether it's community health, whether it's, you know, if they want to participate from home and it's mobile doctors or, you know, whatever have you, it's the options that our patients are asking for and it's what's driving us. You know, patients have options for healthcare. They can choose what doctor they want or choose not to have a doctor and go to a mini, mini clinic or 
in urgent care or they can go through telemedicine. So if they have those options to them in healthcare, why can't they have those same options in research? Well, so participation is key, right, for, for this industry. And so there's, there's a term that we use a lot called patient access. And patient access is actually a two-way street, and we forget this. So there's access for patients, making it easier for patients to participate, but there's a bigger piece of the puzzle that's missing, and this is access to patients. So how do we even get to those patients in the first place to where they know that they want to participate in a clinical study or that the one that they want to participate in is too far away? So this is a two-way street that we don't talk enough about. And why this is so important to me and, and MedVector is because we believe that, that incorporating the treating physician is, plays a key role in access to patients. And we're not talking about the patient that's two hours away and it's too hard for them to drive to the clinical trial site. What about the patient that, or the, the physician that's across the hallway? That doctor that isn't referring patients to your clinical trial? Well, how do we create access to that patient base? And it's incorporating that treating physician. And it could be through, it's definitely through clinical trials as a care option, right? But it could be through that doctor becoming an investigator, or it could be through that doctor hosting clinical trial appointments, or it could be some other way for the physician to feel like they're maintaining control of their patient. I appreciate the spirited discussion. We're gonna move into a lightning closing round, even though we haven't had the little ding yet. Um, but maybe that'll give some time for audience questions. Um, so I'd love to leave uh, the audience with something hopeful and something actionable. So if each of you could share something that you think would be both hopeful and actionable so we can go away from this discussion and, and get to work. I think one of my favorite sayings is we can't pedal the boat alone. So we're all in this boat together trying to get to across the water and sometimes it feels like half the, ball want, half the boat wants to go left around the buoy and the other but half of the boat wants to go right. So I think we need to align strategically, find those partnerships, find those alliances that can get us across the lake, whether we go left or right, but we're aligned in our direction. So we can't, we can't pedal the boat alone. What I find hope, <coughs> sorry, what I find hopeful is the progress that we are making. It may be slow. Um, I know you were saying farmer slow, but it's still progress. And I think that um, collectively, all stakeholders are starting to really listen to their constituents, to what patients really need, what sites really need, take into consideration, you know, incorporating HCPs into the, this equation or really looking at you know community health care those are all things that our patients are really asking for and whether you know UCD has a unique challenge that we focus on rare disease patients and outside of some of the basic um, issues as far as whether a patient goes to a site or doesn't go to a site our patients also have, you know, not just like mobility and cognitive issues, but they have like shame and embarrassment, you know, that go along with, you know, their disease. 
and trying to, they want us to look at them as humans, as people, and to really take into consideration things that are important to them. Like they want to be heard. They want to make sure that they're, you know, they're not being a burden to their caretaker just because they can't like button their shirt or put on their shoes, let alone participate in the clinical trial. So when you take all of these things into consideration and you start listening to regulators and vendors and sites and trying to see how all these people are trying to come together to make a difference, a positive difference for our patients, that's what makes me hopeful. I love that, by the way. Um, and, I, and I agree. Uh, those that know me know that I believe that we're on the verge of a medical revolution similar to the Industrial Revolution. Um, I believe that with gene sequencing and other medical advancements and AI and all of these tools that we have right now, we have the, the potential to accelerate medicine like the world has never seen. Um, in order to get there, we have to get out of our own way, right? We have to, we have to remember why the FDA is there, right? The FDA is there to, to prove efficacy and pa patient safety. They're not the mall cops, right? So we need to utilize the tools that are available to us with that concept in mind, patient safety and efficacy. And if we can do that, we'll be able to stand on our own shoulders again and again and again and again, and this world will be much different than what it is today. Thank you for uh, grappling with some of the things that we all talk about around the water cooler and on webinars and in the hallways. Um, I heard the magical ding. Does that give me three minutes for questions? Two minutes for questions? Three, three minutes for questions. All right, so all vowels are on the board. Anything <laughs> is open for discussion. Uh, and I see somebody going to the mic. Yes, I'd like to buy uh, an E, please. <laughs> <laughs> For everyone, um, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, no, thank you so much. Uh, Scott, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned um, options for community physicians to refer their, physician, uh, their patients to a clinical trial site. So either they become a sub-I, either they lose their patient, um, or the, they just do nothing. So w what might be that fourth option in, in some detail? And I'm wondering about compensating some of those referring physicians for some pre-screening efforts without actually becoming a bona fide investigator? Uh, thank you for your question. It's like she works for me. So my company does exactly this uh, missing, <coughs> missing component. Um, and so uh, as I said at the beginning, what MedVector does is we've identified a pathway that really aligns the incentives between the treating physicians and the investigator teams, enabling these treating physicians to host clinical trial appointments from their practice without becoming an investigator and without triggering a clinical trial site or being on the 1572. Now, there's lots of complications and logistics that are involved in a protocol. So let's not overthink it, right? So if the appoint, let's think about it by appointment rather than by protocol or by indication. So we can all think of a protocol that has an appointment that's got not a whole lot of uh, medical examination that's happening. It's typically a questionnaire, maybe, maybe a blood draw. In fact, when you start to think about it, a lot of the appointments sound like that. So why couldn't we do those appointments from the treating physician's office? And the answer is, we can. 
We just have to be confident about doing it and, and recognize why the FDA guidance is there and the capabilities that we have. All right, let's, uh, oh, we have one, do we have time for one more question? Sure. One more, okay. Sure, um, is it possible to borrow from the home health care model and infrastructure? I mean, I don't think it's gonna work for phase one uh, type studies and other studies that are complex, but you know, we've got nurses that manage patient care from their home offices. You know, I have a daughter with Crohn's disease. I mean, we, we had Remicade shipped to our house. She got it administered by a nurse, you know, in our family room. Um, you know, now she gives herself a Umera shot in the stomach. I mean, but it, I'm just saying so much happens in healthcare now at home. Uh, you know, is it possible to borrow from that model and hold her part to help, you know, with enrollment? Yeah. Absolutely, and right now as it stands, as long as it's written into the protocol that you can go in and these things can be done from the home, we can do that. Um, but that the protocol has to be designed to be able to allow for that. Um, but, but it is possible right now, and if you think about all the technology, the wearables, the tablets, the, all the ePros, the questionnaires, a lot is happening at the patient home right now. Um, but, but with high technology, you have to have, you still have to have that high touch. Um, so it's not gonna be a complete binary, it is or it isn't. Let's thank the panel for the generosity of their insights. I think they'll uh, all be around for a bit if you have additional questions afterward and thank you for being part of the Coalition of the Willing. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit cracoevent.com. Thanks for listening.